Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and today our guest is Ralph DeBugnara, and he is a real estate expert who leads Home Qualified, a digital hub for millennials in real estate and serves as vice president at Cardinal Financial, a major mortgage loan company with $28 billion in closed loans. He's also the author of the book, The Growth Trap. So Ralph, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. So Ralph, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? Sure. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, to be exact. And I went to college, which I wasn't really that good at. I wasn't great in school. I think that's part of my journey. I, school wasn't for me. So when I graduated college, it was during the dot-com boom bust. And in 2001, 2002, it's right around actually right when it happened. So there was no jobs out there except sales jobs. And I had a friend that was in mortgages. He had just gotten out of the Navy. He had gotten a job in mortgages. And he said, Hey, I can get you into the training program if you want to do this. And I really had no other better options. I had nobody around me that was necessarily doing the right stuff. So I took it. It was a good time to get into mortgages right at the time when the rates had gotten very, very low for the time. It was like historic low rates. And which we were in the sixes, by the way, at the time, it kind of gives you a perspective on where we are right now. And I started and I kind of rode that. I bought my first property at 23 in 2002. And then that really started my journey. And 2008 was a big interruption in that because the market kind of crashed and I lost almost everything and started over again. But that was my initial kind of entry into this world. So you bought your first property in 2002. Was that for an investment or was that like your personal home? I actually bought the property with my brother and it was to live in. And then we were living in like an outer borough of New York in Staten Island. And I was like working in Manhattan. And after like six months, he was living with his girlfriend at the time. And I was like, I don't want to live in Staten Island anymore. So I moved to the city. So it ended up becoming an investment, but it was originally for me to live in. So then from there, what did you do afterwards? So you were working in mortgages, you bought yep. your first property. And then what did you continue to do after that? So I bought some properties at the time. The problem was is that I was on really the wrong strategy. So I advanced really, really quickly in the mortgage world. And again, it was a growing business. I was working for a publicly traded company. By the time I was 25, I was leading a pretty large group at a publicly traded company. And I just kind of naively thought I know way too much. And I wasn't asking enough questions. And the hot trend at the time in real estate was you could buy properties that were new construction that weren't finished yet. And before they were even finished, you were able kind of to sell those properties. Because at the time, which is really part of what the market crash was that people don't talk about, they were building so much. And we ended up having in 2007, 2008, too much inventory and not enough buyers. Where the market we're in today is we have too many buyers and not enough inventory. But so I was buying these properties and then the market crashed, financing dried up, there weren't a lot of buyers. And I got stuck with these properties, few of them that weren't even finished yet. So I was on a strategy that was very risky, which I didn't understand at the point. And more importantly, I didn't have any kind of exit strategy. Like I didn't have a way to get out of them in case that happened. So it was six or seven years of learning for me that I didn't know it was learning. I thought I was building something, but really I was learning some hard lessons in life. And it completely changed how I invested in the future, but that's how I got started. And that's how I continued from there. 
So when you say that you were able to buy the properties before they were even finished, was that with your clients in the mortgage side of things or also like for yourself personally? That was was really my personal real estate portfolio. So there's always been two sides to my life. It's always been what my personal real estate portfolio is and and lending. So now we still lend and we're in 50 states and me and my partner have about 200 employees still that do mortgages and financing on everything, residential to commercial to everything. Personally, I have a pretty large real estate portfolio at this point that's really 50% what I would consider long-term rentals, something over a year, and 50% short-term rentals, which is I own a lot of Airbnb properties now. So I kind of have a combination of two, but it's always been two kind of the same, but separate parts of my life. So you bought a lot of the properties that you mentioned using this strategy, and then talk to us a little bit about what happened in 2008. And then what did you learn from that? What did you take away? So the biggest problem, two biggest problems for me is that the faucet kind of got turned off of my income. I was at three companies over the next, I would say, 16 months that either closed their mortgage lending or closed the company completely. So my income went from being pretty significant to almost nothing overnight. It wasn't like a reduction in salary. It was like a lot to a nothing, right? So on the started, mortgage on, side. On the mortgage side. So I, on the mortgage side, I really had to start over completely. I went from somebody that was, I think at the time, I was running somewhere about $300 million a month in business that went to zero overnight because the products went away. And I really had to go back to being a loan officer. I went back to being an individual salesperson who had to completely start over his business. So that was one part of my life. On the real estate end of it, some of the properties I owned went from being whatever they were to about 30 cents on the dollar in certain markets. So I sold what I could sell at a loss at the time because I couldn't afford it. And then I some stuff I got stuck with. Some of it's a good story. I have a couple of those properties still today. But a lot of it was I had all this debt. I had no income coming in. And I couldn't declare bankruptcy or foreclose on any of them. Some because of pride and some because I was at a place in my life where I had to be licensed as a mortgage loan officer now and I had to show financial responsibility. So I couldn't even do it if I wanted to. I was going to lose my livelihood. So it was like coming at me from all angles. And so I really had to start my career over, dig out of all the debt I was in, and really over the next few years, restart my life in a couple of different ways. So what did you have to do in order to start that digging process? I get humble, first of all. I had to humble myself in a lot of ways. And at first, I was taking jobs that were kind of just keeping me at enough money where I could survive, right? I was like, I just need $10,000 a month to survive. So if somebody will pay me that, then I can pay my bills and I can kind of keep the gravy train running. And what I learned out of that was that wasn't the right way. I really had to tear it completely down and humble myself and stuff over. So I started going for these job interviews. I'm like, well... I'm a senior vice president at XYZ company. And I presented myself that way. And what I didn't realize, and somebody had to tell me at some point, I went for an interview. There was this one company that was still doing a decent amount of business in New York City. And I got an interview as a loan officer for a loan officer job. But in my mind, I was like, I'm going to walk in. I'm going to convince them of who I am. And I deserve to be a manager in front of the room. And I met with the CEO of the company. What's funny about him is he's a business partner of mine, a business now at this point. But at the time, he was a lot older than me. He was running this successful company. I went to go meet with him. I went to the interview process and I said, well, you need to have me in front of the room. And this is the why you need to have in front of the room. And he said, Ralph, that's really great. And I'm very impressive resume, but there's a hundred guys like you in this room already. And you're not that person anymore. And if you want to work here, you're going to be a loan officer. And I love to have you as a loan officer, but that's all I have for you. And it was like kind of a pivotal moment in my life where I had to be like, you know what? He's right. And I went back to working 12, 13 hours a day and working weekends. And I just went back to really working, doing whatever I can to sell, to dig out. And it was a great moment for me because it was a moment that showed me no matter how bad it really gets, I can always figure it out. And it changed my mindset on a go forward forever about how I manage my money, how I manage risk and how I manage myself because 
I never wanted to go through that again. But at the same time, it didn't stop me. I just had to figure it out. It slowed me a lot, but I had to cut, I had to figure it out. So you were still holding some of your real estate properties. Yeah, I only had two left after that was over and I didn't even live in any of them. So I was then, I went from living in an apartment on the 47th floor on Wall Street to a studio apartment that was like $700 a month because that's all I could afford. So that was one thing that was completely humbling. And the properties I owned were both really worthless to most people. I paid for them. So I just maintained them the only way I possibly could. I was really just working to pay those mortgages to try to keep them. And I still have one. And at this point, it's completely paid off. It's in Florida. And it earns money for me. And it'll be a good story for me at some point when I sell it, that I was able to survive. But the thing I say about real estate and to this day where I really appreciate it is that as long as you keep a long-term plan with real estate, you can outrun all your stupidness and your mistakes. And I'm proof of that, right? Like I made a lot of stupid mistakes. And in this property and a couple other properties like it, as long as I was able to keep them long-term, I can outrun my mistakes and it ultimately it won't hurt me. But I try to tell people that like it's the one of the only investments where if you're able to stay in it, you won't lose all your money. So what would you say was the biggest lesson that you learned during that time in your first half of your real estate journey prior to the crash and losing all the properties and having yeah. to start from ground zero? I think as a young person, and I see a lot of young people today and I think social media definitely plays into that a little bit. We think that we can, we're smarter or we can do things very, very quickly. And what I found, and even though it's, I guess, obvious, but not obvious is that to really build something that lasts takes a long time and slow and steady is better than fast and over. Anything I've ever gotten fast has really ended fast too. Like I think that we have to be patient enough to build things over the long term and not think we're smarter than the market. So I think now if I was to talk to myself then, I would say, ask more questions. Go find somebody who's got experience that's been in the business in real estate for a long time and ask them what their strategy is now compared to what it was where they started. Don't think it's going to happen overnight. Build a solid foundation so you can build something that's going to last long term. So that's definitely the difference to what my mindset is now to what it was then. Just really stupid from inexperience and maybe some cockiness and thinking I knew more than I could be smarter and faster than the people who had done it before me. And I was really, really wrong. So those properties that you were buying at that time, was it that you were over leveraging yourself or were you overpaying and for those properties? So I bought in a very, very hard market. I think the most important thing that I messed up on that if I could tell anybody today is I didn't have an exit strategy. So there was no like, if the market goes down, I can refinance. If the market goes down, I can sell. If the market goes down, I can do X, Y, Z. I had no exit strategy. So every investment I get into now, especially real estate wise, what's my first question is always, what's my exit strategy? So is my exit strategy in five? years, seven years, one year, 10 years, whatever it is. But like, what is my exit strategy to get out of this investment where it could be a profitable investment? And I think as long as we ask ourselves that question up front and ask questions around that, you can find some successful. But I had no exit strategy. I was just buying and I was living in the moment. And in any investment, especially in real estate, I don't think it's ever smart to live in the moment. It's, hey, what is my expectation on this property? Well, my expectation is I want to be in this investment for five years. Okay. In the next five years, what do I need to happen to get to where I want to be? Great. If that doesn't happen, how do I get out of this? So those are the questions I ask now when I go into a real estate investment. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. 
He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Were those properties like single family homes that you were purchasing? Single family and multifamily. Mostly, I have a multifamily that I still have from then that I still have now. And if I, the problem with multifamily investing or even single family investing as a long term rental, what people think it is and what it really is are two different things. So I think what people think it is is, oh, passive income. I'm going to make all this money. And if I just get a few of these, and the truth of the matter is, if you can break even and make a little bit of money on your rental properties, you're doing good, right? All you really should be looking at is how do I break even or make a little bit of money and build equity? That's what those properties really are. But the properties that I bought then that were that have done well. I had condos in Florida that I bought pre-construction. I was really not looking at, well, if this thing doesn't get completed in time and I can't sell it. What's my plan? There was no plan, right? There was just like, oh, I bought this for 220. By the time it's finished, it'll be worth 280. I'll sell it and I'll be gone. That was it. So when that didn't happen, there was no alternatives. Like I had to rent it then and the rent didn't even cover the mortgage. And I didn't factor any of those things in because if I would have looked at those things, I would have like, well, this isn't a good investment because I have one way to get out of this property. And if that doesn't happen, then there's no alternative. So that was the biggest problem. So after the 2008 crash, what did you do afterwards? And then how did you start to build up your portfolio again? And what did you start doing in order to rebuild yourself? Yeah, it took me four or five years just to get back to normal where I had enough stability to really start investing again. And maybe the PTSD was over at that point. Like, this isn't going to happen again. But it took me probably three or four years. And then what I started doing that is the same thing. I bought the house I lived in, I bought, I made sure there was a good strategy of the property I had moved into. I started buying multifamilies then. In New York and New Jersey, there's a lot of two, three, four family homes. You don't have to buy large multifamily. You can buy smaller. And I started buying those, right? Like two family, a three family property. And I collected rent. And those were good properties because they were easy properties for me to manage. And they were covering their costs. And as a long-term investment, they really worked out. So that's where I really had to start to rebuild it again. And then 2019 happened and COVID and the pandemic and rates dropped. And when that happened, I was looking for something to diversify my portfolio. And that's when I really started leaning into buying the short-term rental Airbnb properties because it was a good time for me to take a risk because interest rates were low. There wasn't a ton of people at the beginning of it out there buying. It became a feeding frenzy. But at the beginning, there wasn't a ton of people out there. So over 2019, 2020, 2021... I really bought a lot of... I bought a mix, but I would say 75% of the stuff I bought was short-term rental, Airbnb, because I wanted to diversify, whereas the Airbnb stuff was a bigger risk, bigger reward kind of market. And so that was my diversification of my portfolio at that point. And so bring us to where you are today. So after operating the Airbnb properties and things like that, is your strategy still continuing to buy Airbnb properties or has it shifted a little bit? I think right now where I am is two different things. Airbnb is definitely down this year as far as revenue goes. I think that 2021, if you look at the summer of 2021, that's the best it was ever going to be for domestic Airbnb rentals. What I mean by that is because you couldn't travel out of the country, but people wanted to travel, right? So it was a lot of domestic travel. So that was very, very high. Now this summer, somewhat of recession, people don't have as much money. And on top of that, people were traveling internationally a lot again because they couldn't take the trips for the last two years. So this may be the worst we're going to see it, right? So I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle of that, where the average between 2021 and 2023 is probably really where we land as far as what your rentals would be. So I'm still looking in the Airbnb market, but what I found is the safest strategy in that market is vacation rentals. Any place that's got a history of being a vacation market, I like to buy in that market, especially after summer where there's less demand. Now's a good time to buy between now and kind of like February or March. So that's a market I'm looking in. 
On the long-term investment side, even though prices are way up, especially in the market that I live in every single day, anything I can get delivered vacant, so no tenants that I can rent, I like because yes, prices are up. Yes, interest rates are up, but rent is also up a significant amount across the country. So what I do remember about 2007, 2008 is even in the worst market of all time, right? Rent still went up that year. Rents will always rise, right? So if I can get a property that can get delivered without a current tenant in it that has an old lease that I can't get out, I like anything right now that I can buy reasonably that I can raise the rent on. So those are the two strategies I'm still buying in today and I still look at today. So what are the markets that you focus on for your Airbnb side of the business? And then how about the long-term? The long-term rentals, I mostly focus on local. So New York and New Jersey, just because that stuff I kind of want to be local to. It's easier to manage for me. Although I feel like you could manage properties anyway, but a lot of the stuff is New York, New Jersey, maybe Pennsylvania, Connecticut, like kind of my, my area. For the Airbnb markets, I'm in about, I think I'm in six states. And you anybody can check that out. It's, it's Lucina, L-U-C-E-I-N-A.com. Those are my short-term rentals. But I've learned how to manage Airbnbs pretty well remotely. So I'm kind of diversified on that. But in that, again, I'm looking for areas that are true vacation areas because there's new Airbnb laws popping up every single day. And almost every market that I'm in right now requires either a permit or there's some kind of tax on the income. So I want markets that have an established policy already. I'm not going to get a surprise after I own the property. Like, hey, we're putting a new law and you can't do this. So you can't do that, right? Like New York City just banned Airbnb properties. I never had a property in, in New York City for Airbnb, but that's something if I did and it was generating income and they just banned it. Like, okay, well, how do I market? So I found that areas that have a history of renting for vacations, the local economy is set up around it. Local government understands it and local residents aren't trying to get rid of it, right? So that's, I think those are really three important things of challenges that I faced in the past on properties that I bought that didn't work out or I had to switch back over to long-term rentals. So any market that I find right now, and I'm in Florida, I'm in North Carolina, I'm in Pennsylvania, I like Texas, I like Tennessee, if you can find the right prices. So those are kind of the markets that I'm looking in currently still. I'm always looking in to find properties that make sense for my strategy. What are some of the resources that you look into in order to do your market research about the laws and whether or not the residents are in favor of Airbnbs? Yes, really good question. So for data or statistics on the area, I use a couple of different sites. One of the ones I use is AirDNA.co. And AirDNA.co, the good and the bad of short-term rental income is that it's public knowledge. So it's great for buying. It's bad because all the local governments can see it too and they figure out how to tax you on it. So it's good and bad. But if you go to AirDNA.co and you buy a zip code, you can look up exactly what the average rent is for the area, what the top properties are for the area, and what they did exactly in rental income for the last 12 months. So it's great to kind of, I was like, okay, I'm buying a three bedroom, two bathroom property in this area. Let me go look at the top properties in the area. Okay, this is my competition, right? This is the property that I'm going to have to compete against to get business. And this is how much business did last year. So that's one of the resources I use. When I'm looking at a market, once I find a market that I deem to be something that I want to buy in, I immediately call the local municipality and say, hey, what are your short-term rental loss? So you could go on local government site almost everywhere and look for somebody in the housing department, but I always call the local municipality and say, hey, what are your short-term rental laws? And they'll either send it to me or I could talk to somebody and say, hey, these are the taxes, this is the permit you need, or there is nothing. And then thirdly, I try to interview at least two to three local realtors and say, hey, what do you know about short-term rentals? Good, bad, and ugly, right? And when I find a property that I like, and this is a mistake I definitely made in the past that I didn't do, but now I do every single time. When I find the property that I like and I want to make an offer on, I always go and ring the neighbor's bell. You always go, I'm sorry, what was that? 
I ring the neighbor's oh, bell. Oh, you ring the neighbor's bell. And I say, hey, my name is Ralph. I'm looking to put an Airbnb property here. Is your property a short-term rental and or do you have a problem with it? Because I've had people who had problems with it. So I've had both situations. I've had neighbors who hated it. I bought a property in New Jersey, in Jersey City that I've been into an Airbnb. And what I didn't know before I bought the property and before Airbnb was legal there is that then my neighbor had a sign up in their front yard, no Airbnb in this neighborhood. So I learned the hard way after I put the Airbnb there. I think she called the mayor's office on me. So it was not good. And then I have other properties. I think four or five of my properties, my neighbors are my cleaning person, my handyman, my property watcher. Like I have great neighbors in some places. So that's the most important thing. Go talk to your neighbor and see if they have an issue with it and or if they can help. So in a lot of places, those are the three things I always do when I'm researching a market. So Ralph, you also wrote the book, The Growth Trap. And so does that talk about your journey of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, it talks about my journey through life and real estate and everything else. And a growth trap basically is we're born up until our adolescence. We get bigger, faster, stronger. We adapt to kind of changes really easily. And we don't know any better. We have no frame of reference. So we just kind of adapt. And then we get to a point in life where it becomes hard to adapt or hard to change or hard to grow. And some people just stop. And I've been stopped hundreds of times in my life with my growth because I didn't know how to get over the obstacles. So the book talks about my journey and how I've hit these obstacles and how I learned how to get over them. And other people who are like me, whether they're entrepreneurs, they're in real estate, or they're sports athletes or famous stars that who met the same kind of challenges in different ways and how they got over them. But I believe we all have growth traps and I still face them today. And it's just a matter of learning how not to quit and how to kind of keep working through them. So Ralph, what's next for you? <laughs> Good question. So <laughs> I'm going to continue to buy properties. I also have a couple of things that are coming out that are great. So we have a television show that we did season one in 2021 and season two is coming out in 2023 in November. November 8th is going to be the launch date, I believe. It's called the Disruptors Network. And we interview other people who are entrepreneurs who face some really, really hard challenges or setbacks in their life. And now they found success and they're showing other people how to do it. So we have an NBA player on there, an NFL player on there, some real estate mogul, kind of people through all walks of life. And it's six episodes. It's going to be on all the streaming platforms and it's going to be on DirecTV after that. So go watch it. It's good content to kind of show how you grow a business and a life and how you can fail and come back from it. So Ralph, how has real estate investing impacted your life? It's a good microcosm of everything in life, I feel like. It rolls like this, right? It's not a straight line up. It's not a straight line down. It's kind of a roller coaster. So it's really taught me a lot about everything. And more importantly, I think real estate connects to everybody in some way, shape, or form, right? Like everybody is interested in this country and other countries too. Like everybody's dream is to own property, to have property. So it's enabled me to access people in my network that I never would have been able to access if I couldn't talk to it. So it's something to leave my children. It's something to help me retire from my regular daily job where I'll have passive income. It's definitely been a gift for me in so many different ways. And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? The right way takes a long time, right? Doing things the right way is the long way and it takes a long time, but you'll be appreciative of it if you do things the right way. It's going to take you longer, but it'll take you to a better place than doing things the quick way and probably the wrong way. And Ralph, what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? consistently learning, keeping yourself updated on the market and keeping an open mind to different strategies and how you can access them. But if you're willing to keep your mind open and learn from people who have done it before and learn from strategies and continuously learn, there's no way you don't succeed in real estate. So Ralph, where can my listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? So a couple of places. So my Instagram, which is D-I-B-U-G, it's a play on my last name, Debug. 
is I put out content there every single week, a few times a week, and I answer all my messages there. So if you want to check me out there, and then my website is my name. It's ralphdbagnara.com. You can contact me there. It has my book. It has my real estate courses. It has all the news we kind of put out daily through my company. And it has a little bit about everything on my website. Awesome. Ralph, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.